Welcome, everyone, to episode 225 of Some Like It's Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're discussing 2023's first MCU film and the 31st in the franchise, I think. I don't keep track of this stuff anymore. Uh, that's the third Ant-Man movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. Before we get to that, though, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Yeah, don't look at me. If you don't know what number it is in the MCU, then I'm certainly not going to be the person who's going to know. But um, yeah, Scott, I'm doing good. Uh, it feels like it's been a long time since we did a regular episode of the podcast. You know, we had yeah. a bunch of lists and anticipated movies and our awards and all of that. I guess the last real movie we reviewed was Missing, right? Has it been that long? I think so, because we, we talked about Sundance which is like not a traditional, right. episode, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we went awards and then anticipated. And now, yeah. And now we're talking about Ant-Man. That's right. It's been well, what a film, what a film to come back on Scott. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, we're, we're fully in gear now. It's 2023 movie season. We got Creed coming out this week um, yeah. and a few more big movies before the summer. And then uh, yeah, smooth sailing from here on out. So um, yeah, I'm 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 doing good. Excited to be getting back into the the regular reviews. If I sound a little off in this episode, I'm having some computer trouble, so that is bugging me a little bit. Uh, no hey, pun intended there. Bugging you? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so I'm doing this from my phone. Something we haven't done in quite a while, Scott. Intrepid <laughs> listeners will remember the dog days at the beginning of the podcast when, which frankly sounded still sounded much worse than this. Yeah, I mean, because you were literally calling me on the phone. <laughs> yeah, you were on speakerphone into a microphone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, humble beginnings, all of us, yeah. Thanks to our, our our multitude of Patreon supporters, we've been able to to upgrade our, our audio equipment um, and it generally put out reasonable quality podcasts, but today may take a dip just because of my situation. Yeah, it's... um. We've both had technical issues over the years, I feel like, but to have a computer go totally down 30 minutes before we were going to record, that's that's not something that's happened ever, if not a while. That's right up there with when I did the uh, the podcast from the bathroom in our hotel room in uh, Atlanta. <laughs> was that Atlanta? Okay, was it Atlanta or Houston? I can't remember. No, it was Atlanta, yeah. That was so funny. Yeah, I mean, look, you're going to be here in a couple weeks. If we're just talking about experiences, you know, this year we're, we're getting to go to an Oscars party this year here in New York City, which is exciting. Um, and, you know, maybe after the Oscars, you can just hop into the bathroom in the tub and we can record an episode. Yeah, uh, I Scream uh, 6 is coming out that weekend, so uh, we'll definitely have a movie to to talk about. And, yeah, maybe maybe it's the tub situation. Maybe maybe we're going <laughs> to roll it back, run it back for old time's sake. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the great question. Do we talk about Scream 6 or do we talk about the Oscars? Maybe we wait for Scream 6 the next weekend and ignore Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Maybe that's maybe that's the way to go. I'm sure the Oscars will make me scream at least six times, but I'm... <laughs> oh, that might be Not true. in a good way, to be clear. I mean, you never know. It could be your year. I don't know. We'll like... talk about that in part two, I believe, Scott. <laughs> that's true. We, we have two more weeks, two more episodes of awards talk to go before we reach the big day. Um, so we'll save it for part two in this episode. In the part one, however, as already mentioned, we will be reviewing the third film in the MCU's Ant-Man sub-franchise and the third MCU film directed by Peyton Reed, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. 
Picking up some time after Avengers Endgame, Quantumania finds Paul Rudd Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, as a now-successful memoirist and living happily alongside his girlfriend Evangeline Lilly's Hope Van Dyne, a.k.a. The Wasp, and now teenage daughter Cassie, played by Catherine Newton. As Scott has become more obsessed with his celebrity status, his relationship with Cassie has also become more distant. And over a family dinner with Hope's parents, Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, and Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, to Scott's surprise, Cassie reveals and activates a device she's been working on that can establish a connection with the quantum realm. Upon understanding what the device does, Janet panics, forcefully deactivating the device, but not before the connection had been established, resulting in a portal that opens and pulls the five of them into the quantum realm. Separated from each other and trapped in the subatomic world, Scott, Cassie, Hope, Hank, and Janet must reunite and find a way to escape before a mysterious and powerful figure from Janet's past in the quantum realm, that's Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors, hunts them down first. Scott, that's you, Scott, Scott Harvey. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania represents the start of Phase 5 of the MCU. Would you say that Phase five start is as auspicious as Phase Two's with Iron Man 3? Or does the hit and mostly missed track record of Phase 4 of the MCU only seem to continue here? What do you think, Scott? <laughs> I mean, what do you think I'm going to say about this? Um, sure. Yeah, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, unfortunately, yeah. to our listeners. And honestly, on that topic, um, I, I'm reaching the point. I think we're going to have to have some conversations off air, Scott, about moving forward uh, on the podcast with these MCU entries, whether it makes sense for me to participate, because uh, I can't at least see myself changing my my tune anytime in the the future i feel like i've given these things every chance to fix the same issues that they always seem to have for me at least you know since the start of phase four um mm -hmm. and you know again we're starting a new phase here so i tried to have as as much of an open mind as possible going in um but it's you know it, it could have easily been in phase four right like it's it um you know it has has all the same issues um to me that a lot of those phase four films had and uh you know is arguably even worse because it is coming at the start of the phase and so so much of the movie as many people have pointed out is merely just set up um for everything that is to come in particular everything that happens with kang appears to be set up um like so, so much so that i guess spoiler alert but we get to the end of the movie the entire plot has played out and scott lang is walking around like oh hey you know we did it we you know we beat the bad guys or whatever and then he's like well wait a minute but did we actually and that's just kind of the note that the movie ends on right like yes there's a there's a apparently mid credits and post credits i of course did not stay i read about them afterwards um but i understand you know there was some hinting oh yeah kang's coming back or whatever but it just kind of ends with an absolute shrug and that's really what this whole movie is it's just an absolute shrug to me um it feels like very minimal effort was put in. I mean, you know, you're describing the plot there, Scott. And the last movie was largely about Ant-Man and the Wasp, that is, was largely about trying to rescue Michelle Pfeiffer's character from the quantum realm, which they were successful in doing. And now within the first 15 minutes, we're right back in the quantum realm again for seemingly very half-assed reasons, right? Like Cassie Lang, Catherine Newton is just sort of messing around in the lab. Um, and 
bang, all of a sudden she she does something she's not supposed to. We're all back in the the quantum realm. I mean, that's oversimplifying it slightly. She was cooking. Again, we were letting her cook, yeah. Scott. Yeah, they really were. But um, yeah, honestly, it, it's the the reality of the situation is that it's not much more involved than that. It's it's just very. Um, like I said, half-assed. We got to get these people back in the quantum realm. So, you know, let's do it. I guess the, the real world just isn't interesting enough anymore for these movies. But um, Why, why yeah. shoot on location when you can shoot on a green screen, Scott? That's what I tell you. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is that the quantum realm does allow them to, um, you know, make use of some spectacular green screen visuals. Um, <laughs> Scott, I got to be honest with you. The, the quantum realm scenes, which is most of the movie, as we're alluding to, um, mm -hmm. it's some of the worst looking stuff in, in the whole MCU. And that's really saying stuff. I mean, it, you know, and of course now all the articles are coming out as they do with seemingly every MCU movie now of, Oh, well, VFX artists were, you know, were incredibly pressed to put, put out the visuals for this movie or whatever, because resources were being diverted elsewhere, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, yeah, it, it definitely shows on the screen that that was the case. I mean, looks so fake these scenes in the quantum realm like the the characters in the foreground when it, when a character in the, is in the foreground which is most of the time when they're in the quantum realm it does not look like they are in the physical environment that they are supposed to be in like that that's how bad it looks um i think to that point i was actually to talking about the articles coming out about vfx and stuff you know i I myself am a little bit tired of those articles as well, but I was reading I was reading a, a different kind of article today that addresses the exact point that you're talking about and talking about how the VFX art, so like the volume technology that they use, which is the same technology a movie like The Batman used last year, which I thought looked like a gorgeous film personally. I thought they did yeah. a great job with the technology there. The problem is, is that the whole point of the technology is to render visuals before you film. So when you're filming, you're actually sort of, you're not, obviously you're not filming in real life, but like the actors know what they're working with. It's not just a green screen in the background. But the thing is, is that if, according to these VFX artists that they were interviewing, is that the visuals that were rendered in the volume for them to act on are not the same visuals that are actually in the final movie, which makes it the whole thing. I mean, who knows whether it would look, it would be better or look better if those things were synced up. It probably would be better. I mean, who knows how much better. But it's kind of crazy that you have this technology whose whole point is to make it more immersive for the actors to act in. But then you're, it actually is not even the location and the visuals that you're actually going to set them against at the end. It, it kind of just feels like they're just wasting the technology um, that, that they have at their, you know, at their, at their fingertips at, for the sake of we have to pump out 40 yeah. different assets a year, whether it's movies or TV. I, I don't know. It, it just seems like it's a complete underutilization and waste of technology. And that's just at the service of we need to put out three to four movies a year. Yeah, well, whatever they're doing, it's not working. Uh, that's yeah. that's the, the gist of it. Um, because, yeah, yeah the, the movie looks terrible. It's distracting. It, it, is, uh, it is to the point where it is distracting from the entire experience. Also, of course, you have MODOK showing up. Mm -hmm. Um Corey Stoll, you know, in a way reprising his role from the first Ant-Man film as Darren Cross. Um, yep. But, you know, this was going around on Twitter, how stupid MODOK looks. Um, and he does. But honestly, to me, it was not even the most offensive thing visually. 
in the movie. Like I said, I think just the general. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, him that. looking terrible is kind of the point. I mean, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like kind of campy to me. Like that's if, if we if we were spending they the are, saying the worst looking thing was Modoc, then we'd be OK. Yeah. I mean, all of the characters are acknowledging that he looks. Oh, totally. At, le- yeah. at least. Um, <laughs> yeah. So at least there's that. But um, yeah, I mean, the humor is very lame. You know, there's not really much of an attempt. I mean, uh, you know, talking about Modoc, there's this scene, another scene that's been going around on social media in the moment i was like oh my god this is so bad but it's kind of one of the final moments between cassie and uh, modok and you know they just have this ridiculous exchange of dialogue uh where she's like telling him don't be a dick anymore and it's never too late to not be a dick i think is is what she said yeah yeah it's one of the scenes maybe the most in the mcu that like would strengthen the principle that the actors were not on the set at the same time when they did this scene. Like it, it, it just the, the disconnect that seems to be going on. I mean, the dialogue is bad first of all, but then the disconnect that seems to be going on between like Catherine Newton's performance and Corey Stoll's performance. Like it just does not feel like they recorded this as a natural conversation. I, I don't know, but you know, that is another allegation that has been, lodged at mcu movies recently is like yeah who even knows like what the when the actors were there and all this stupid stuff but um yeah it it doesn't it doesn't doesn't uh, turn out well this particular scene and most of the scenes in this movie so yeah i don't have much good to say about this this movie scott you know the the one positive quality i guess is jonathan major showing up as kang but sure. even th- even that doesn't seem to have impacted me as much as it has other people. Um, he's really not in the movie a whole lot. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a solid you know forty five minutes or something before we get introduced to him. Um, well, I mean, I mean, you written, see him in the first you see him in the first scene, yes, right? Or no? Yes, yeah. but I mean, that takes two three minutes. And sure, then, yeah, that's know. fair. And then the rest of the time, the characters are just like talking around what happened. It's it gets so annoying and circular, like when they get to the yeah. cir- the quantum yeah. realm, yeah. and like they're encountering all these people who knew Janet from when she was down there, and they're all like vaguely alluding to something that happened. And we all know that it involves Kang, but like none of them will say exactly what happened. And it, again, it just feels redundant. We just keep going in circles and but anyway eventually they do reveal it jonathan major shows up you know i guess he he leaves a little bit of a mark he's a little scary of a villain but i'm just not really seeing what he's going to bring overall to the mcu that you know is going to to write the ship so to speak um yeah i mean i don't know if i don't know if it can write the ship but i think one of the post credit scenes the mid credit scene specifically is the one where i think it shows you the what kind of flair that Jonathan Majors is going to bring to it. And that's because he's going to play, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple different versions of this character. Right. Um, and that's, that is sort of the hook of the performance. It's not just the same recycled Thanos conquer the world type. It's actually a bunch of these different Kangs with different personalities, slightly different, slightly different personalities. I should say different vibes and different goals. And, having that play off each other. I think that's the flair of the performance. You, you don't get that level of flair in this role because obviously there's only one in this movie and, and you know, maybe there's only going to be one or two in each film that he's in. But I think that's sort of like the, the dynamic of this performance. I mean, I, th- I thought he was great personally, but um, 
I don't, again, I don't, to your point, I don't know if it's his magnanimous performance is enough to pull these extremely mediocre films out of the doldrums. And even still, his motivation does just seem to be general conquering world dominate. Like, I don't, I didn't really see much beyond that. Maybe that's something that'll be revealed in later films, but um, I didn't find that to be too exciting or interesting. Um, yeah. Well, yes, well th- this, this King's motivations is to actually stop the world domination of the other Kings. That's the, I mean, that's like, it's kind of confusing, honestly, but like he's yeah. King the Conqueror because he's conquering other timelines and, and killing other Kings and sort of like liberating, you know, what he, whatever his view of, you know, the right, the right ending of time is, but he himself is not necessarily trying to dominate the world. If that makes sense. It's, it's, it's a little obtuse. As I much sense as it's going to make to me, probably. But um, Fair enough. yeah, in general, Scott, not a good movie, not an interesting movie, not a movie that corrects any of the sort of issues that I was having with the MCU in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And not a movie that gives me really any desire to go to the theater and see future MCU iterations. Frankly, like I was saying, I think we need to have some conversations about the podcast and with these movies going forward frankly i think you should probably just uh, tell jade uh, to saddle up anytime there's an mcu movie because i'm going to be waiting for disney plus yeah yeah i mean it's it'll be interesting to see we i mean you weren't on the wakanda forever podcast jay and i were more positive than you were on that film you were pretty negative on yeah. it whereas we were not as negative but i yeah i, I think that I, I was listening to Mallory Rubin, who was on the Big Picture podcast when they were talking about mm-hmm. this, saying how she feels like, I mean, she was not a fan of this movie. It didn't sound like, but she really feels like people are, are really giving unfair comps to a lot of like these new Marvel movies, which I think to some extent is true. Like, I, I feel like it's hard not to compare these movies to the ones that we remember as the best MCU movies from the first three phases. You know, it's hard not to compare this to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One or Spider-Man: Homecoming or the event or the first Avengers movie, right? Like think or like Winter Soldier movies that I think are widely considered to be top tier in the MCU. But Phase One, there was like two good movies in Phase One, probably in my opinion. There was Iron Man and the Avengers, and those were the two good movies. Yeah. In phase one, in phase two, it gets better. That's when it starts to pick up. But if you sort of take phase four as the reset, you know, the first film, as I was alluding to at the beginning of phase two was Iron Man three, which, you know, I think there's there is a cult following for that movie. I think it's it's probably middle of the pack for me. It's probably better than some people give it credit for. But it's not like, you know, we we only ever get top tier ones. The, The next film in phase two was Thor the Dark World, I'm pretty sure which is, I think, widely considered to be one of the worst MCU films. So I think it really does build towards something. I think my issue, and I I don't know if this is where maybe you were going next, is my issue is that I don't feel like we're building towards anything right now. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the tough thing for me is that Phase 4 had this culminating, or sorry, Phase 4 didn't really feel like it had an Avengers film. Like, I know that there was Spider-Man No Way Home. I know that there was Black Panther Wakanda Forever. But those movies aren't team-up movies. Like it's not like other films in Phase Four built to No Way Home or built to Wakanda Forever. They're these pseudo standalone films 
that are sequels to previous films in the franchise that don't really feel like, I mean, I enjoyed No Way Home a lot. I liked that movie. It was probably the best film in phase four, but it doesn't feel like it's a payoff of anything in phase four. And, and maybe you can start to see the threads of, of payoff and of where you may, might get in the future with something like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. But the Kang, like Kang's arc is going to end at the end of phase six. Like, it's not like it, it may be a long time before we see Kang again outside of like the Loki TV show, which is where, you know, he originally appeared in the second post credit scene was teasing the second season of Loki, which is going to have some version of Kang in it, it looks like. But to me, I think the, 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 the fact that they're putting out what I view as, you know, low tier or bottom tier MCU films, and it doesn't really feel like they're building towards anything I, I can see. I think that's like, that's the real issue. And I get confused then when I, when I listen to a podcast like The Big Picture and Sean and Amanda on there, the hosts, are talking about how they feel like they, they enjoyed Quantumania because it felt like a standalone movie. Like, I just don't know what, mo- what, the, what they're watching. It doesn't feel yeah, like... Yeah, that's, cr- that's a crazy it doesn't feel like It doesn't feel like a standalone film. And it also barely feels like it's building towards anything because we know the timeline of the films and those films are coming in like three or four years. Like, it, it, like we're going to have like 10 more movies and TV shows, if not more between now and then, like it doesn't really feel like it's building properly. I, I think the reality is, and I know I haven't even talked about the movie itself yet. And I'll get to that in a second. I, I just feel like a little bit at a loss. Like I just feel like this whole endeavor has like gotten away from Marvel. If I'm being honest and in, They've in the lost last the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm sure that the, the cork board, like Feige's like murder board of MCU like it all makes sense to him, but it's just not translating in the films. I think, I think the overarching story isn't getting laid out well enough. Like there wasn't to me, and you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm off base here. It didn't feel like there was a culminating move. Like I can't tell you what Phase Four was, other than just a bunch of random movies that were neither standalone really, nor building towards something else. Like it, it just for me, it just felt like a little bit of loss. Like there were new characters introduced, but it didn't lead into to anything. Like the first phase of the Infinity Saga. You know, there were sequels of characters that wrapped up storylines, but also didn't wrap up storylines because there's going to be another Spider-Man movie. There's going to be another Thor movie. Like, it, it doesn't really feel like we're getting any payoff. Like, Guardians 3 seems like it might be the first one that's, like, actually going to tie up a loose end in something. And that's the next MCU film coming out later this year. But, like, is that is that going to feed the broader franchise and the story problem that I'm talking about? You know, m- maybe if it's a good film and it re- wraps up the Guardians story really nicely, it won't matter. But it doesn't really feel like all these movies are are feeding a broader purpose and and not that they need to but i'm just confused like it's either a standalone movie or it's feeding into something else and and i'm just feeling like it's doing neither like the, these films are are not doing either thing they're not well they're not being standalone films productively and they're not feeding a, a broader narrative either at least for me and i think that's where i'm getting really stuck right now with everything and it, it just it's very unsatisfying i think is the is is the way to put it for me yeah, and I mean, frankly, for me, I don't really care about the building towards anything because, as I have gone on record as, uh, as saying, I think that they've already built towards the highest high that they will ever achieve, probably, which is yeah, Avengers probably. Endgame. And so, for me, it's more like, 
I would rather see a standalone film. Like, like to me, the best movie that they made since Endgame was Multiverse of Madness, right? Was the Sam Raimi Doctor Strange movie, sure. which is one of the least, uh, you know, the most standalone, I guess you would say, of the the movies that have been put out since Endgame, right? There, there wasn't a whole lot. Um, I mean, you know, maybe there's like the John Krasinski tease or whatever, but we don't really know what's going on with that, do we? Oh, I don't, I don't um, read into that at all. I mean, but there's yeah. like the there's the WandaVision stuff there, though. Like even with that, you still had, yeah, like you couldn't watch that movie if you hadn't seen WandaVision. I stand by but, that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we had that conversation at the time, but like I, I didn't feel that way that you had to have watched WandaVision. Like, you know, I thought it was pretty easy to to pick up on the fact that she wants her kids, you know, she doesn't have them. They're in this mm -hmm. alternate universe. There's really not that much more to it than that. Um, I feel like you don't really understand the stakes for her though, without, or like how far she's already gone. You know what I mean? But fair enough. Fair enough. We don't yeah. have to relitigate Dr. Strange. Yeah. And anyway, that movie felt like it was just, you know, kind of doing its own thing. There wasn't, you know, a whole lot that it was setting up down the line. It was just kind of a fun standalone, you know, horror influenced superhero movie. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, n now, you know, like you're saying this movie, I, I don't understand how they could say that this movie feels standalone because the whole thing is, is set up. Right. And it just, it, it, it is, I think reflected in the actors and the, you know, just the general quality of the, the production just being very lazy and, and you mm -hmm. know, haphazardly stitched together, it seems. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with these. I, I can't tell if it's laziness or, frankly, just how rushed everything is. And I, I, yeah, yeah, I hesitate sure. to say it's lazy because I'll, I'll say to actually start for me to actually start talking about this film now. I just found the writing to be so abysmal. Like, it really yeah. was. Um, I, it's one of my least favorite probably stories and scripts to date. I was texting Jay the day after I saw this movie. Um, and I was telling him that Michelle Pfeiffer not sharing anything that happened with her in the quantum realm for 30 years or whatever is like, is, is, is Dom from fast and furious, not telling anyone he had a brother until F9. I mean, it's like or that level of storytelling is, is the Butler from Spider-Man three, not telling anyone uh, not telling Harry that he cleaned, uh, you know, his father's wounds and that he was pierced by his own glider until two movies later. <laughs> T totally. It's it's just like, I mean, I think, again, sorry to talk about the whole MCU again for a second, but like one of the things that I really liked about the Infinity Saga is that it really felt like Marvel knew where they were going the entire time. Like it really felt like they had yeah. plotted out things. And then it, it's just like, they're like, oh, what if, what if, what if Janet had met King? And actually, not just met him, but, you know, had a pretty significant history with him in the quantum realm. And what if, just what if she just didn't say anything if, uh... to anyone about that? <laughs> it's just, it, it's like pretty wild storytelling. And it's one of those things where I think I could forgive it if it's just like, you know, a, a mechanic to continue the plot like like movies like that do do stuff all the time similar and it's okay if, if the rest of the film makes up for it you know but the problem is is like to your point about you know you were talking about this very specific scene with modok and cassie at the end of the film there's just so many scenes 
like that in the movie. Not even just in terms of performances where people aren't on together. It's just the dialogue is so is so cringe. And I just like don't I don't I just yeah. don't know what I just don't know what to do about that. Like it's just like I like the whole Michael like and then don't even like Michael Douglas. Like what is happening in this movie with Michael Douglas? Like how about them trying to convince us in the beginning that like Catherine Newton is some sort of like uh burnout social, social is, justice warrior yeah who was like getting thrown in jail because yeah, she's yeah, like yeah. getting into it with the cops that was not believable for a second like i and they don't they don't follow up on it at all it's just like it, that's al- it almost felt like self-satire of like people who do like it felt like they were tr- like it might have been satire <laughs> but i just i don't think it was satire is the problem that was our intro to, to this version of Cassie Lang, and then they just, like, never revisit that quality of her, it seems. The rest of it is just, like, again, the most... Um, well, I think that's, like, kind of the setup for, like, trying to redeem MODOK or whatever, like, telling him, like, oh, he doesn't have to be a dick or whatever, you know? Um, it's just, like, the, the, the I think, to that's your point... giving it a lot of credit, but yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to give it that credit, because what I'm about to say is that I just think the character arcs are, like, weird yeah. in, in this film. Um, I, like... I mean, the whole thing with Scott Lang, too, we're really we're really jumping all over the place here with this review. And I apologize to our listeners for the very ADD nature of it. But but like Scott Lang's character arc here is that like, okay, remember how he like kind of say like it was him that kind of saved the world. Like it was his quantum realm technology that allowed them to time hop around and do everything they needed to do in Endgame. It's like really because of him that everything was possible in Endgame. And he's now just like a huge self-obsessed dick in this mm-hmm. film and his arc is that like he re- like he kind of reconnects with his daughter ish because i don't even know like <laughs> their relationship like, doesn't even seem that bad though in the beginning like i know you know it's true it, yeah it doesn't he seem is that getting terrible. called out for you know being self-absorbed or whatever but it's not like serious like i, I don't want to talk to you i don't want to see you dad or whatever they're all the stakes just, don't seem very high yeah they're chilling at you know michael douglas's house you know just a you know, big happy family more or less yeah family dinner yeah i couldn't tell you it's it's, it's like very blue bloods it's very confusing um i think that's the thing like i just i I had a really hard time following and getting invested in any of the arcs. And I think that goes back to the point, um, almost a broader point about all the movies since Endgame is that I'm having a hard time really caring about any of these characters. And I think Ant-Man and the Wasp in- included there. I mean, I barely cared about them before. Let's be honest. It's not like it's, it's a, it's a downward trajectory. Wa- Wasp isn't in this movie. Like, let's just, let's just say it. Wasp is not. A you, you know, I saw that in your letterbox review and I didn't totally follow because I think most of these characters are barely in this movie. Like it's so split up that you get very little but time. Wa- with Scott, Wasp characters. is in the title of the movie and she is not <laughs> in the movie. That is the big issue with me. Yeah, I, again, I, I'm not quite seeing the extent of what you're talking about with that, but she's obviously in the film less than, than Scott Lang. That, that is definitely true. Um, less than anyone. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer has more than, to do than her. Catherine Newton yeah. obviously does. She saves. She saves Nathan. him when he's when she's when he's getting the uh, the core or whatever of the ship. You know, she jumps to action. But fair, fair enough. I, I do, I do yeah. take your point. Um, yeah, I just. I can't get invested in these characters. I mean, also like the lack of self-awareness just on the Wasp point. The fact that they're giving her a humanitarian award 
<laughs> at the beginning of the movie. Oh my god, completely sent me. Um, Jesus, I mean, I was just like, come on, guys, what are we doing here? I guess it helps, uh, you know, I guess they can get away with doing stuff like that when the other, uh, you know, major comic book property like universe is putting out a movie starring Ezra Miller in about a month I mean, or two. Yeah. That's, that's true. That's probably slightly worse self-sabotage, but yeah. I mean maybe, but at the same time, apparently according to James Gunn, like that's one of the best superhero movies ever made. So um well I we definitely could... believe James Gunn, you know, the person <laughs> who is like now running this universe. That, sure. Yeah. 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 Definitely has no incentive whatsoever to say that. No, yeah. I mean he's he has nothing to do with it, obviously. I, I just, I'm very confused. <laughs> speaking of, sorry, diversion on The Flash here for a second. I saw the trailer of The Flash before this movie. And, Scott, I wanted to bury my head in my seat. <laughs> like, I, like, sure, maybe the movie will be fine. But I'm like, why is Michael Key? This is literally the plot of Birdman. Like, this is literally what happens before Birdman. <laughs> Michael Keaton d- appearing in the post credit scene of Morbius makes more sense than whatever he, he's doing in The Flash. Oh, my God. It's, yeah, I mean, gosh. Because he's playing also Batman, but known as the Vulture in the MCU or whatever in that post credit scene. I just, I don't understand. I, I can't. I mean, I don't know what's going on. Like, maybe The Flash will be amazing. And I'm sure I will see it opening weekend. I'll never know. But yes, maybe it will be. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. Ezra Miller, man, I can't. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe we should just maybe we should just move on from from this line of of talk. Yes. Yeah. I, look, Jonathan Majors. Come on, like, maybe we should be positive for that. I thought Jonathan Majors is excellent in this movie. I thought he was. I thought he was excellent in the episode of Loki season one that he featured in the season finale. I thought he was wonderful as Kang um, in that in that episode. I think he's. A, I think the variant. I forget the name of the variant that he played in that in in the show. It'll maybe come to me later, but um, he who remains that's what that's what his name was. Uh, this one he's playing a different variant. That, that this is a different Kang than the one in Loki, um, playing Kang the Conqueror. I'll be honest, Scott. The the part of the movie that I liked the best was were the scenes between Kang and Janet, the flashback scenes. I kind of just wanted a movie of what happened in the thirty years before. She was rescued out of the quantum room. Like, I thought that was the best part of the movie. I thought that it actually, I mean, to one of the things you probably, it felt like the people were on set at the same time. Like, it felt like there was a real connection there in terms of the chemistry and, and, the, and the interactions and the, and the movie making there that, that really did hum for me. But ultimately, that, that's only like two or three scenes in the film. And I was really, I really wanted a lot more at that point. And I wonder if you felt similarly. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have liked to see more of the character in general because there was something there. I mean, you know, I'm not really into necessarily into this brand of super serious villains, which he is. You know, he's very intense. At least again, this version sure. of Kang, as we're uh, as we're. I think you, I it. think they'll probably all be quite serious, but who knows? Yeah. So you know, that only goes so far. But obviously, he's a very talented actor. We know this. Yeah, he does have one or two moments where he is legitimately sort of imposing and threatening, um, you know, physically and just with with yeah. everything everything about him. But um, I mean, he's physically quite quite built for yeah. uh, between this and Creed three and Magazine Dreams. He's a scary, dude. Yeah, if the, you know, if there's one thing to say positive about the movie, it is obviously him, but it is not you know, so positive or so engaging that I'm like, 
I have to see these future movies now because I want to know what happens with Kang. Yeah. Like, I, I don't really care anymore still. I, I think that's exactly right. Like, I, I just think that there's so many other ankle weights basically on this film where, you know, not even John, like a imperious Jonathan, Jonathan Majors can really rescue it. And I think that's also the, the, would be true of Thanos as well. You know, if, if the other parts of those movies and in, in the Infinity Saga did not did not yeah. hum, it wouldn't matter how good Josh Brolin was as as Thanos. Like it just wouldn't. Like you need it. You need a good villain to like take your film to the next level. But he's not going to salvage. Uh, you know, a dying. And I film. think you could say the same about Christian Bale and Thor: Love and Thunder, right? You know, that's sure. they brought brought him in for for that movie. That's a huge deal. You know, big A list movie star, or whatever. And yeah, you know, he was he was fine like again it, it it did not improve or um you know hurt the quality of that movie in any significant way for me yeah that's that's fair um and i think and i think this film and love and thunder suffer from a lot of the same issues um i just i just i honestly i feel like marvel it needs it needs a refresh like i'm just gonna say it like it needs to be shaken up not from a storyline like narrative perspective, I'm not talking about that, but like, I th I think they just need some new filmmakers. I, I honestly do. Like, I think one of the things that really worked in the first few phases was there were very few repeat directors um, doing the films. I mean, obviously the Russo brothers is an exception, and and um, you know, um, oh gosh, the director of Iron Man, John Favreau. John Favreau. Yeah. Yeah. Like even he took a step back, and then it was it was. Shane Black take, taking the third one. Like, I think that you need these fresh perspectives on these characters. Um, yep. And, and, you know, Peyton Reed, like, you know, the first Ant-Man or whatever, I mean, it was fun enough. The second one wasn't even terrible either, but now yeah. it's like all the life has been sucked out of Peyton Reed, probably by the, the corporate, you know, machine. I mean, sure. Go, go watch. I don't know if it was his first movie or, or, how what point in his career was go watch his film down with love from the early 2000s wonderful movie and it will remind you that hey these filmmakers they actually do have some skill and that the real problem here is probably not them and more the the machine like i said yeah i mean down with love was the second movie i mean he directed didn't he direct bring it on the cheerleading that's film? that is correct that is true also a fine film yeah, I, I mean, look, I the, these it. these films are all, I'm sure, like lukewarm received. Like these are not like critical darlings, and frankly, neither. But neither are the Ant Man movies now, right? Like, I just think that there's something there's something missing, and I, and I wonder if one of those things is the directors and the but creative talent. And I know that what you're about to say is that is that that didn't work out so well for like Chloe yeah, Zhao, exactly, but. But I think, but I think that the problem there is, um, I just, I, I mean, well, one, I just think that 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 property was just so, it just didn't work. Like what they were doing with that movie, just like pretty much everything that happens in that movie doesn't make any sense. The more you think about it, and also yeah. the fact that there's this giant whatever the hell those huge titans are called in that movie just sitting out in the ocean, and not a single other film has acknowledged that yet in the MCU. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing. Um, Whatever though, you can see it from space, Scott. You can see that thing from space, and no one's acknowledged it yet. Yeah. One of these, but movies. but you know, Sam Raimi coming in was a good thing for a few minutes. That was sure. you know Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness. But I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but 
I thought the the major problem more than anything is that they are pr- prioritizing qual- quantity over quality, right? Like I think I, yeah. that I really where, do, yeah. where it is yeah. all coming from. And even if you are, you know, Chloe Zhao or, uh, you know, another genius filmmaker, like there's only so much you can do under those conditions. Like that they, they are not being put in a position to succeed. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's, that that's pretty right. I think that it's, if you're going to have an overarching story and have a, a sort of master like Feige sort of pulling the strings in a lot of ways, I think you just got to have a system that's sustainable, right? And it doesn't seem like the creative vision is being sustained with the system that they have. It doesn't feel like the actual asset, like the products themselves are being sustained with the schedule they have because they literally can't finish their VFX, even though they have hundreds of millions of dollars of budget um, up against these films and TV properties. And the, the truth is, is that the things were more manageable, probably. And we know that they were better because we're watching the movies and the TV shows when there was less of everything and it was more digestible. You know, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe that, I mean, they're still may, probably making more profit than they were before producing more and more TV shows and more and more movies. So maybe it doesn't matter at all. But I don't know. It's um, yeah, I said yeah, this in my letterbox review, but they, they better hope that Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is good because you saw the the second weekend drop this past weekend on this film it was brutal. It was the worst, the worst second weekend drop in MCU history. And I don't think that means that like this sets off a bunch of alarm bells at Marvel, but it means that if they keep creating films that, you know, with characters that people don't care about as much, which I think Ant-Man certainly qualifies for that. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think people care about Ant-Man as much and they aren't good and they don't have good word of mouth, which Ant-Man does, definitely doesn't. I think that what you're going to see is is less and less returns for some of these movies. Again, all those things have to go wrong, I think, for Mar- for the Marvel machine to break down. But it's it's a worrying sign if you can't start either a getting character continuing to develop characters that people care about, which I think they're a bit hit and miss. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see with the sequels of of things like Shang Chi, if people care about that character. I think maybe he's an example of one that they that people do care about. But maybe there are some examples of others that people don't. Or you gotta you gotta raise the bar on the quality of your films. And right now there there's struggle around doing that. You know, maybe they can they can fix that in the next few movies with its Guardians, the Guardians and the Marvels this year. I don't remember what's leading into next year. I don't know if they've announced the precise films that are coming out next year, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like you were about to say something else. Did I hear you? Oh, I actually didn't really know that about the box office tanking for this, because what I was kind of going to say is at the end of the day, even though I do think people, even some, you know, Marvel fans are getting woke to the fact that, hey, these there's been a significant decline in quality here. Mm -hmm. Um, People are still going to see them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is which is why, you know, my position is I'm going to wait for Disney Plus because I know I am just one person and my. Uh, not buying a ticket hardly has any impact whatsoever on, um, you know, the Marvel mm-hmm. Marvel's philosophy going forward. But, you know, if I'm going to sit here and complain about, you know, these movies taking up all the theaters, despite the fact that they suck and blah, 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 um, then I guess I should put my money where my mouth is and, you know, not go see them in theaters, not be part of the, the reason that they are still you know, dominating the sure. multiplexes everywhere. Yeah, I mean, as a consumer, that's that's all you can do. 
I think the problem is, is that like, you know, what, what movie is this stealing a screen from right now? <laughs> That's yeah, the problem. No, I mean, at, at this point in time, yes. And, and again, it's not like I'm going to see this movie at the expense of something else, right? Like, obviously, I'm go I go to see everything in theaters. So I, I, we are not exactly the, the people who right. are, yeah. quote unquote, the problem here. But sure. Um, anyway. Sure. No, no, but I know what you mean. I mean, you look, you could have gone and seen Cocaine Bear instead of this movie or whatever. Like, you could, there is like another movie you could have gone and seen in in place of this film. I haven't, I still haven't seen Magic Mike yet. That's crazy because I feel like you were so excited for that movie. I'm so, I'm so surprised that you. Haven't I seen that I, movie yet. I was, and I love the second one now. I, I just watched the second one for the first time, and that I can't believe that it took me this long to watch that movie because it is right up my alley. But, um. But yeah, I just haven't had time. I've been extremely busy recently. Yeah, it's been a, it has been a very busy time for both. I of made us. time for this instead. So yeah, yeah, maybe I am the problem. But because we were going to be talking about it on the podcast, sure, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we should do some justice to uh, quickly, but to the some of the other parts of this film, we talked about Paul Rudd. People said that that they. I mean, I heard people saying that Paul Rudd was good in this movie. I just thought he was whatever. Like <laughs> honestly. Yeah, I mean, they don't do anything interesting with his character. Yeah. It doesn't seem like he really wants to be there. Like, it, it's it's just time just to send Ant-Man off. Into, I mean, he's been... I mean, they had the chance to, Scott. They had the chance to leave him I in know. the quantum realm. I know, yeah. They could have had an interesting direction there. Um, but, of course, they, they turn away from that every chance that they can get. But, yeah, I mean, what he's been in the MCU now for... 10 years or something more than that probably what was uh, i thought i think it was 2015 i could be wrong but yeah maybe so i mean he it's it's time to retire this character and let paul rudd go back to doing you know comedies with whoever evangeline <laughs> uh, lily i don't know uh, i mean yeah <laughs> we talk we talk about her being a bit absent in the movie as well yeah ant-man was 2015 um we talk about evangeline lily being a bit absent in, in the film, I'd agree with that. I don't think really she has much to do. Catherine Newton, I wish better for her. You know, I fire really... her, fire your agent girlfriend. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what is going on, but she, like, her, her franchise roles that she has taken on have been awful. Well, I mean, you know, Detective Pikachu is probably not fair to say it's a franchise, but like, yeah, it is. It's Pokemon. It is. It's one of the biggest franchises in the world. Yeah, yeah, I know. I guess I'm just thinking, you know, they didn't make any sequels and they're not going to be well, as not, far as Not I yet. Know, they haven't. I, they will. Okay. Well, maybe they will. But anyway, she wasn't good in that movie. She's not really good in this movie. It's just... And, and again, the character they're giving her is like, of all the actresses to give this part to of, you know, like trying to be the bad girl or whatever in the beginning... Like, I just don't think that she's the type of person who can sell that at all. She's very much seems like you're innocent. I mean, like, she seems like her, like, main character in Freaky, right? This, like, innocent high schooler. That's, yeah. that's, like, the vibe she has. You know, maybe college student now. She's getting a little bit older. But Freaky in the map of Tiny Perfect Things, Scott, you up, up th thumbs up or thumbs down? I mean, I'm still thumbs up on her in general. Those two movies I did really enjoy. And I think those were well suited to her mm -hmm. abilities. But, um, yeah, I mean, th this doesn't bode well, of course, because now she's going to be in, in more of these Marvel movies. And you know, I mean, maybe. Her... How yeah, many, maybe, well, like, maybe when, when, when is the next time we're going to see 
Cassie probably, I maybe uh, she's probably going to be a Young Avengers. I don't know. That's a TV show. I think they're working. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah. The point is, it is going to be taking up some of her, um, you know, future portfolio when she could be doing other things like those two movies you mentioned. So uh, I don't know. The I was once hopeful for her a couple of years ago, but um, yeah, that may she should have. Maybe I mean, she po- post big little lies. We were we were very positive on her. In society as your, well. Your golf career. She's just stuck to her golf career instead. Well, she's going to be the lead in Lisa Frankenstein, which is the Diablo Cody, Zelda okay. Williams horror comedy with okay. Cole Sprouse. I think is the co is the co leader. This main supporting there. Well, you had me until Cole Sprouse, but yeah. Well, <laughs> pairing with Diablo Cody, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah, and then she's also going to be a supporting role in Winner, which is the Susanna Fogel reality winner film. Um, the biopic Amelia Jones is the lead in that, I believe. Oh, well, great, great team there, as we already know. Susanna Fogel yeah. or F- and, Fogel and Amelia Jones. And Amelia so. Jones, yeah. What could go, go wrong? Go to duo. They are the uh, uh, Denzel and Spike Lee of their time. Yeah. I mean, you heard it here first, guys. Don't, don't <laughs> at me at, at Scarvey Dent on Twitter. Um, yeah. So that that is the Langs, I guess. And, I mean, I, I Michael Douglas, I, they, they must have wheeled him out of whatever nursing home he's in at 80, whatever years of age he's at. For no, this man, film. he's still pumping out the Kaminsky method, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably that's in the nurse. That's probably filmed in the nursing home. That yeah. Out. I mean, I'm and sorry. I, mean, I, lo- I love Michael Douglas. What a career. God, I don't know. I just I it felt offensive in this movie what he was doing. Wouldn't you still want to be getting paid what he's probably getting paid, though, at like 80-something or whatever? Yeah, Surely when him. you're that old, though, does it matter? Does it matter anymore? He can settle his affairs, you know. He's got he kids. Settle his affairs. Yeah, fair enough. I he's still married to Catherine Zeta-Jones, right? Is that true? I mean, you're, I'm sure you're right. I think he is, yeah. Wow. Yeah, good for him. You know, Academy Award-winning actor doing whatever the hell he was doing on that spaceship. I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Choices were made. Yeah. Um, let's see who else. Uh, I mean, Michelle, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer, we talked about. I thought, she, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer was good. I'm giving Michelle Pfeiffer a pass on this one. Um, it just felt like she and Jan- Jonathan Majors were in different movies than everyone else. It just yeah. it just felt like a completely different film. Um, and that other film is the one I liked more, if I'm being honest. Uh, William Jackson Harper playing a telepath. David oh, Desmalkian. Yeah, he was in this. <laughs> What'd you say? Oh, yeah. William Jackson Harper was in this. I literally yeah. forgot until you mentioned it right now. Yeah. David Desmocking playing his second character of the MCU because he's in the other Ant-Man movies as one of the side as one of like Luis's guys or whatever. Um, yeah. And he's playing the slime creature Veb, um, who I thought was funny enough. And then Katie O'Brien playing Gentora, which is the leader of the Freedom Fighters. I mean, who knows if we'll ever see any of these characters against Scott? Um, they won't, which is actually a quality that that Sean and Amanda noted that they liked about the about this film, that they met characters that they then wouldn't see again, which would be fair enough. Except I'm sure that we will see them again. I'm like positive that we'll see them again at some point. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it just felt like nothing. Completely forgettable elements of the movie, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, Bill Murray, Scott. Another (laughs) another thing. Just another incredible thing. An incredible choice to make up there with giving Evangeline Lilly a, a humanitarian award was whatever sex jokes they were doing between Bill Murray and Michelle Pfeiffer 
Like the man was literally fired from a film last year for inappropriate sex jokes on a set. Like that, that man literally also, crushed a production last year because of that. That's how they used Bill Murray's MCU card for one scene of this movie. Yeah. What a waste. Crazy. Crazy, crazy behavior that this gets left in the film and isn't like edited out or reshot somehow. Yeah. Crazy after what happened last year that this gets left in. I just thought it was it was just wild. No self-awareness. Yeah. And then Corey Stoll. I just yeah, enough said. My guy. <laughs> I like they must have paid him a huge bag to do this. I mean, they know it must truly I hope have. so. Um for his sake. He can't possibly have imagined that in 2015, playing the villain of Ant-Man 1, that he would reprise eight years later as MODOK. Again, I don't really have that much of an issue with how horrible MODOK looks. I mean, that is the point. You know, I think people dunking on, on that element are like a little bit missing the point, maybe. But the problem is, the, the problem for me just it wasn't the visuals, it was it was his character. I don't know. Like it, it just, I didn't, I didn't kind of get the arc there at all, but yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. All right. I think, I think we've done enough. We've done, we've done our duty here. Um, favorite scene or moment from Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania. Huh. Um, <laughs> I guess something with Jonathan Majors, like, yeah, what, sure. what you're sure. saying, the flash, the flashbacks were fine. Um, yeah. I just, I really honestly can't even remember most of what happened in this movie at this point. Yeah, actually, one thing before I say my favorite scene or moment is, um, Scott, I, I had the great fortune of seeing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull the day after I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. And there is a scene, which you may or may not recall, Scott, in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where hordes and hordes of ants swarm the adventuring group of Indy being chased by Kate Blanchett's character, her villain, um, Spalco, and consume several people um, and, and drag them down beneath the ground um, in a technique that looked very similar to what happens when they, when, when Paul Rudd's using his, I mean, variants, I don't even know what to call these things, to like climb up to this core uh, the mm -hmm. core of Kang's ship they're trying to recover. And I mean, like, eerily similar scene <laughs> to each other. And uh, all I'm going to say is that I, I think that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was the original Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Uh, Quantumania being what happens at the end of Indiana Jones. And the but maybe Ants was the original of both of them. Um, no notes there. That's a DreamWorks picture right there. I think. I think that's DreamWorks It is. Picture. The Woody Allen classic. All right, well, we'll leave Woody Allen out of, out of this podcast. Anyway, yeah, all I'm going to say is uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, more enjoyable than Ant-Man of the Lost Quantumania. My favorite scene from this is actually probably the opening scene of the movie, Scott. I'm going to say we're about four minutes into this film, and I'm like, this could be a pretty good movie. And uh, then we snapped back to the present day, and it did not come to fruition, I'd say. Oh, man, you didn't love that joke where they're mistaking him for Spider-Man and the, the coffee shop? Yeah, um, it Scott, it genuinely astounds me that everyone in my theater laughed at that joke. Oh, I, I know. Like, and so many times throughout the movie, like yeah. people were laughing. I was like, this is just embarrassing. 
I think for me, it's not even that the humor is not funny, which is certainly an element of it. It's not a funny joke. But the fact that I'd heard, I'd, I've heard that joke a hundred times. Yeah, it's in the trailer. Yeah. It is like the, the smash cut trailer line, I feel like. And I, I just don't, I don't understand why. I mean, even if it were a funny joke, like you must have heard it so many times on it's like TV the Ikea, or wherever. Ikea joke from Eternals. Um. Yeah. Fall collection. That, IKEA. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot. I mean, I tried theory. to repress that, Scott. It, it scares <laughs> me that you can still think of that. Because um, I saw it five hundred times. Yeah. No. That's that's fair. That's fair, Spider Man. Um. But yeah, I just it really it boggled the mind a little bit. All right. Give me a score out of ten for Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. Three point oh. Bad movie. Sick. Um, you know, I was stuck between uh, probably about a four and a four point five, and I think in my letterbox review I I rounded up for Jonathan Majors, but I'll be a little bit more honest here, I guess, and give this a four point two. I uh, I wished for a lot more from this film. I don't know if we'll ever get better films. I mean, I think that I think the Guardians will probably be better than this. I'll I'll put it that way. Um, I think that that James Gunn for the most part's had a pretty good track record. And I think I'll he's find the... out when it comes to Disney Plus. Yeah. I do wonder if a consecutive enough movies in the MCU being poor and people waiting for them to come to Disney Plus will start to train more and more of the Marvel audience to do exactly what you're what you're talking about. Um I'm curious yeah. to see how that plays out. We'll see. But um interesting dynamic if you because I think, simply put, I think a lot of people might be waiting to watch this. After the reviews, I think I think people are waiting to watch this. Because they know they don't have sure. to wait that long. You know, they're waiting 45, 60 days at most. It's sure. not like it used to be where you might have to wait, unless you're going to go buy it on home video, you might have to wait nine months, yeah. a year, for it to come to Netflix in their previous deal. Um, it's, much, it's much shorter now than it used to be. But that will do it for our discussion of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, time to talk awards. Scott will we'll pull you out of the doldrums, and we can talk about the PGAs, the DGAs, the SAGs, whatever you want, Scott. We can talk about it, and we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, so many awards to catch up on, Scott. You talked at the beginning how we haven't done a, a normal episode of the podcast in nearly a month. So we haven't really been talking about these Guild Awards that have slowly been trickling out over the last few weeks. So why don't we start with the most recent awards first? That is last night's SAG Awards. Scott, why don't you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so um, I actually watched the ceremony, and you can actually watch the ceremony whenever you want because this was a uh, a partnership for the first time ever between YouTube and Netflix. Yeah. So it's right there on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, the the award full award ceremony, and that's where I watched it um, this morning. Um, and It'll be on Netflix you know, starting next year when they actually have the live sort of right. the live content production capabilities up and running. 
this ceremony was getting a lot of praise, um, actually, which is rare, it seems, for an award ceremony nowadays. Um, yeah. And I kind of understand why after seeing it, Scott. It was a very emotional ceremony. It was a very um, joyful, celebratory ceremony. They really did sort of prioritize um, the work and the artists um, throughout the evening and, and, you know, nothing other than that. You know, there is obviously something pretty self-congratulatory about the SAG Awards and it's, you know, actors awarding actors and the speeches are often talking about how important acting is or whatever. And everyone is patting themselves on the back. To the nature of the Guild and, Awards in general. Yeah. Like, look, isn't it, aren't we doing the most important thing in the world, right? Acting. Um, but um, I, I think there was, there was less of that um, than perhaps normal or, or what is expected um last night mm -hmm. so that was good um as far as the film awards scott um i am not really sure how much to make of the results moving forward in oscar season uh but there were some slightly chaotic choices um at least going against the the trends of what we have been seeing recently but sure those include uh, jamie lee curtis winning for best supporting actress a category that we had previously said was pretty much locked up in Angela Bassett's favor. Um, Scott, you know, this is one where I don't really think that it, um, it has much significance. I think this is clearly a sort of legacy award type situation. Jamie Lee Curtis was getting huge ovations throughout the ceremony. You know, at the beginning of the SAG Awards, they always do this bit where they go around the room to a few people. They I'm tell their acting stories and then say, you know, I'm um, Jamie Lee Curtis and I'm an actor. Actor, She got to do one. She got the loudest, you know, response of anyone. Um, got a huge response, obviously, and standing ovation and everything when she won. So mm -hmm. I think this was more of a, you know, actors respecting a veteran um, in, in Jamie Lee Curtis and giving her this award. Kind of strange because Angela Bassett is kind of the same thing right like she's also a veteran who um has been nominated for many awards in the past but i don't know if she's ever won a sag but anyway it just seemed like the narrative was around jamie lee curtis i'm not sure that's going to be the case for the oscars i still think angela bassett will win this award um it just seems like you know the the legacy thing was a factor elsewhere scott you know uh, uh, to this point in the TV category, uh, Sam Elliott was actually awarded for his performance. I saw in, that. Uh, a yeah. TV, some miniseries, I believe it was. And it was not. A, yeah. Oh, it was Okay. Yeah, whatever was whatever like, his Yellowstone prequel was. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The one he got well, I was about to say, it wasn't anything that I had heard of. But yeah, I mean, I have heard of that. because. It's a, but again, it was one of those things where, like, he was up against some pretty tough competition, from what I recall. Um, and Oh, yeah, definitely. They, they gave it to him, the veteran, right? And, you know, he made a point in the, at the beginning of his speech to say, you know, this was the, the greatest achievement that he's had in his entire 50-something-year career in acting. So Yeah, I mean, um, he, he was up against Steve Carell the who is for The Patient, yeah. Taron Egerton, and Paul Walter Hauser from Blackbird, so maybe they split the vote. Evan Peters, right? And then Evan or Peters Dahmer, for Dahmer, yeah. his Netflix show, Dahmer, yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of a surprise, but again, I, I think this is just kind of a, you have to consider the context of these awards type, um, mm -hmm. situation with Jamie Lee Curtis winning. 
you might be able to say the same thing about the other sort of surprise winners, which would be that Michelle Yeoh did win for Best Actress. Not a huge surprise, right? Like she's she's been there throughout award season. She won the comedy or drama, uh, comedy or musicals category at the Golden Globes. Um, but you know, this was where this was you know the really interesting one because this is where she was directly competing with Kate Blanchett, who has been thought to be the favorite. And uh, you know, she won the award over Kate Blanchett. Again, Kate Blanchett, somebody who's been you know highly decorated, won pretty much everything that there is to win. Michelle Yeoh, you know, esteemed actress, very popular and acclaimed actress um, for for many years, for 20, 30, 40 years, not not received the sort of awards recognition, at least here in um, America, like Kate Blanchett has. And so yeah, maybe a not. nod, a nod there from the actors saying, hey, look, we see you, we appreciate you, and we're going to, you know, give you the recognition that you haven't gotten throughout your career. Um, whereas Kate Blanchett, you know, couldn't obviously say the same. So I still think that Kate Blanchett will win the Oscar, but I think her grip is slipping a little bit, especially because so much buzz is behind everything everywhere all at once in general. Um, oh yeah. And definitely. much less is behind tar. Um, uh, but, We'll get to that in a minute. Um, Scott Brendan sure. Fra- Brendan Fraser also won the Best Actor category for The Whale, um, beating out you know his main competitors Colin Farrell and Austin Butler. Um, yeah, I don't really know what's going to happen with this category, Scott. Um, you know, it, it, continuing with the trend, I guess for the, what I'm saying with the SAG Awards, um, Brendan Fraser again has been in the business for a long time, never received any sort of accolades. Um, he's had a very, you know, sentimental narrative surrounding him throughout award season. You could see that being the reason why the actors wanted to to award him. Um, does that mean he will win the Oscar? I don't know. I, honestly, I think Colin Farrell has faded to third place at this point. I think that the race is between Brendan Fraser and Austin Butler. Um and, you know, again, maybe I'm going to sound crazy that I just am saying the SAGs don't mean anything, but um, I still think it's that Austin Butler is going to to win. I think that that him playing a real person carries weight with the Academy more so than than a lot of other um, guilds and, and things, so to speak. Um, so, you know, again, he wins because Brandon Fraser wins because of the narrative but I think that's going to be taken less into account when we get to the Oscars. Um, and then, of course, for the other major acting award, Ki Hui Kwan did win for Best Supporting Actor. No surprise. He will be winning the Oscar. Um, yeah. That is one thing that did not sort of mess with any predictions. Um, before we talk about the big winner, though, Scott, um, any thoughts on these sort of deviations from the norm? All I'll say is that I think the SAG was a perfect 100% last year. Will Smith, Jessica Chastain, Troy Kotzer, Ariana oh DeBose, all won at the Oscars. I think Troy Kotzer might have been the, in terms of narrative, at that point, might have been the one, yeah, the one comp, the one, the one true comp to what we're talking about here. Because I think Will Smith, Jessica Chastain, Ariana DeBose, I think they were all more or less locked in as the favorites. 
of their respective categories and they weren't really they weren't really being challenged by anyone but troy kotzer certainly started gaining steam and passed cody smith mcphee who i think was largely considered the favorite yeah. in the category for a large stretch of the award season last year so i don't know what that means for uh you know someone like brendan fraser or jamie lee curtis um it would be it would be pretty pretty wild if everything everywhere all at once won three acting awards at the oscars I mean, how many other sure. films have done that not that many other films surely have done that. Surely Jamie Lee Curtis is not going to win, right? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I I like the movie. I will go with people on it, but that's just that is too far. That is a bridge too. I far. I mean, she won the SAG Awards, Scott. Like, it's it's a real chance. I know, I know, but I mean that that to me is just a bridge too far. I I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you know, Angela Bassett's performance in a Marvel movie blew hers out of the water, in my opinion. Blew Jamie Lee Curtis's out of the water. Yeah, I mean, I'm I am most surprised that she that Jamie Lee Curtis won this particular award because Stephanie Shu is in the category with her. Yeah, like you yeah. think that they would split the vote in the category at least like one of them here, and someone like Angela Bassett or Carrie Condon would have an easier time taking home the trophy. But it's just not the case. I mean, it, this supporting actress category is completely wide open. I mean, like yeah. honestly, Carrie Condon, Angela Bassett. And now Jamie Lee Curtis, any three of them could win this award. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel that way for actor. Match. There's still a race there, like you said, with Brendan Fraser and Austin Butler. I would agree that if Colin Farrell were to pull off a win in, you know, on Oscar night, that would be that would be wild at this point. I think that would really signal. I think I think that would signal something chaotic happening, maybe. Or maybe it wouldn't, yeah. because there's there's no there's no everything everywhere all at once people in that category. But it just felt like there that that'd be some real chaos if he if he won in that category. You know, Michelle Yeoh, Kate Blanchett. You know, my gut says Kate Blanchett too, but there is just so I mean, and maybe this segues into the next point you're making, but there is just so much heat around this movie. Um, everything everywhere else. It's only grown. Like I wondered if it would sort of fade a little bit, but the narrative here, you know, maybe similar to Coda last year, as as the narrative developed. I mean, it seems to only be gaining momentum. Yeah, um, it's the clear favorite for Best Picture at this point, you would have to say. Um, And, you know, I was thinking about it while watching the ceremony. And then I went to Twitter right afterwards. I was going to share like some of my thoughts, but then Guy, I saw saw almost immediately that Guy Lodge had had put out a tweet that almost directly captured what I was feeling, which is... It feels different from the CODA situation, even though I am kind of like similar in terms of my thoughts on each movie where like, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. Is it best picture? Not even close for me. Um, That's kind of how I feel about about both of them. With everything everywhere all at once, it seems so much more authentic to me what is going on. Like, you know, you, you watch the speeches from last night, you watch the reaction, you know, particularly they win the best ensemble at the SAG Awards and James Hong gives this long speech. You hear all of them talking about sort of what they have experienced as Asian actors in Hollywood, not Jimmy Lee Curtis, obviously, but um, <laughs> the rest of the cast. Sure. Um, and, you know, Kihei, Kihei Kwan, in, in his case, you know, being 
cast aside and not not put in anything for many years because you know his his only noted role kind of was as this asian stereotype in a couple of you know 80s classics um Mm -hmm. but then you know hollywood just kind of casting him aside because i guess they didn't have that stereotype role for him to play anymore um it just feels like it means this movie clearly means so much more than something like coda did and you know coda had the representation element to it but so much about the narrative around coda and you know you have apple backing that movie it just felt manufactured um and i think the point to you're saying there is that like I, I think that the representation element of coda what is important and was authentic yeah but i think that there was the secondary element of what you're talking about that i felt like a lot of people were saying like it's the best picture because it made you feel good like not because it's yeah. landmark and representation which i think it was still and that was an important part of it but i just felt like some people were like it's the best film of the year because it just made me feel good was what like a lot of people were saying. And I, and there's no element of that. I think with people talking about everything everywhere all at once, mainly because it's not really a feel good movie, but two, because represent the representation element of this is even bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it clearly just, it has reached so many people, right? This, this film and um, it's, a, it's an odd film. It's a very original film. You know, sure. again, a lot of the things that it are, it is, doing don't necessarily connect with me but the fact that this type of film has reached so many people and feels like a legitimately important achievement in in terms of you know the representation aspect of it like Mm -hmm. you know i don't even i don't ever expect the best movie to win at the oscars sure so if you're if you're gonna if you're not gonna give it to the best movie um why don't you know why not give it to a film like everything everywhere all at once which is a very meaningful film in my opinion and meaningful in all positive ways and is original too like it, you know that you can say a lot of things about that movie in in criticism but you cannot say that it is not an original piece of work so you know it, it's not even close to being one of my favorite films of the year but if it wins best picture which seems inevitable at this point it's not going to be the same situation for me as it was with Coda where I was just kind of like, well, this is stupid. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that a lot of your arguments there could apply to Coda. It just feels like a lot of people were getting behind it, not because of the representation, but because of, Oh, I felt good after watching it. I think that's the frustrating part. Yeah. I, I can't necessarily even point to what's different about it, but it just, it feels different. Again, watching that, the SAG awards last night, it, it felt different watching the reactions and the the speeches for everything everywhere than it did yeah. for Coda. Well, I think it's just because those communities are so much like the, the, the Asian community within Hollywood is larger sure. than the community of deaf actors, sure. you know, take that for what it's worth, right? Take that as a positive mm-hmm. or a negative. Um, but I think that, I think that it means more to even, it means as much to more people, I should say as a film. Um, and I think you can feel that in the room. Whereas I feel that just, I think the dynamics there of the, of the communities that it affects is a little bit different. Um, but they both felt, they both felt like an, like a good, uh, an important watermark and representation, but it didn't feel like as many people were getting behind Coda. And I, I, again, to repeat this one more time, it felt like a lot of people were just voting for it because, oh, like I felt good at the end of it. I mean, like, I just feel like I, I, we read articles of people saying that like, yeah, like it was it it made me feel good to watch it which i'm like 
all right, should we should we take that that Top Gun Maverick is going to win? Because I know everyone felt great after watching Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Um, and and maybe that is in the number two position right now for Best Picture. Maybe maybe it is. Um, but that's probably also an a a, per, a good enough segue to talk about a couple other Guild Awards that often are pretty good indicators for the Academy Awards. That is the direct the well maybe less of the Directors Guild, but the Producers Guild I think is a pretty good track record on Best Picture. Yeah. Um, you know, last year Coda won won at the Producers Guild Award. The year before was Nomadland. The year before that was nineteen seventeen. That's the one missed probably. Green Book did happen the year before that. Shape of Water the year before. It has a very, very solid track record of predicting best picture winners and fitting the narrative that we've been talking about here from the SAG Awards. Everything everywhere all at once did win at the Producers Guild Awards as well in in, in the main prize, overcoming its main competition in the Academy Awards as well. And frankly, it's a similar story at the Directors Guild because, you know, not to sound like, I guess, a broken record here, but, you know, you had an award show once again, sort of recognize what at the time, because this was the first, this was the earliest award show now that we're talking about in terms of this, but the Daniels were given, were given the top prize for directing. Um, And I think that that was a, that at the time was a pretty big surprise because it wasn't really viewed as like, oh, the Daniels need to win this to continue to build momentum for everything ever all at once. It was more like, well, Steven Spielberg, um, I think he might not have been nominated. I can't remember if he was not, one of these award shows. He wasn't nominated. Um, I can't remember which one it was, but it was the it was the Baftas, right? The, oh, the right. Baptist it was the just like completely ignored the Fablements. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like, t- yeah, now I'm looking at the, at the nominations. You know, it was Martin McDonough, Steven Spielberg, Todd Field. Um, Joseph Kaczynski and the Daniels here and, and the Daniels won, which I think was a surprise because you wouldn't say that they're favored to win the directing prize at the Oscars. And you wouldn't even say that it would have dented their chances or their narrative if they hadn't won it either. But even in spite of all that, you know, even with other favorites in the category, it still pulled out the win. So, I mean, it really does feel like all signs pointing towards, you know, them winning best director. I mean, the past, I'm looking here. It was Jane Campion and Chloe Zhao the previous two years, who also won the Best Director Prize. Um, you know, Sam Mendes the year before, which was obviously uh, wrong. But Alfonso Cuarón won for Roma. Uh, Guillermo del Toro did not win. So you know, it's not as quite as accurate as the PGAs, but still pretty good track record of predicting those awards. And I mean, it's kind of crazy, Scott. But is it? I mean, it might be the case where everything everywhere all at once is sweeping every major category that it's nominated in. Yeah. And look, I said some nice things about the film as far as directors concerned. I'm sorry. I cannot talk myself into the Daniels deserving this award. Um, yeah, it's it. This needs to be Spielberg's award. I know he's won before. I don't care. He deserves to win this again. Um, and, and I will be disappointed if he does not. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I will say just in general, Scott, it does feel I mean, it's a little bit exciting that we're going into the Oscars and so much still feels up in the air. You know, we're sure. talking about these acting races where in the case of most of them, except for Best Supporting Actor, there are multiple names that could be called like we're, we're genuinely unsure as to who is going to win in three of the major four acting it's categories. Not usually. Uh, we're unsure about best director as well. 
So I would just like to see some variation again. Yeah. I, I have talked myself into being okay if everything everywhere all at once wins best picture. But if that is the case, I don't want to see the Daniels win best director. I definitely don't want to see Jamie Lee Curtis win best supporting actress. And, you know, I loved Michelle Yeoh in that movie, but I think Kate Blanchett should win the award. So, yeah. I um, mean, imagine if Jamie Lee Curtis wins this Oscar. Like, Glenn Close is probably ready to just kill someone. Like, just <laughs> absolutely go on a murderous rampage. Um, I mean, she should have been in a movie that exists then instead of <laughs> Albert, Albert Nobbs or The Wife. The Wife, yeah. What if there was a wife, Scott? What if? Um, yeah. It will be, I mean, I guess it would line up, right? Like, we just talked about all the awards and how they track in previous years to who won, at least last year, specifically with the SAG Awards. So it's kind of lined up for everything everyone wants to sweep. Maybe we should be, maybe we should be saying that the awards are wrapped up. Maybe it's it's our false notion that the SAGs are not predicting very well, maybe, that that is saying that the awards aren't locked up. But yeah, it does feel like there's genuine anticipation around you know, four of the six major categories or whatever, um, which is exciting because usually we're lucky if there's if there's, you know, anticipation around two or three of them. Um, I, so, yeah, I'm very you talked about our, our sort of Oscar plan, Scott. I, I'm very interested to see sort of what the vibes are going to be inside Lincoln. Center. Very pro everything ever all at once. I guarantee you that. You think very so? Pro. OK. Uh, yeah, absolutely. OK, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, that the, the diverse crowd there for sure. No doubt. Um, I'd be surprised. I mean, I could be wrong. Well, they'll be having they'll be having a good night then. I, I mean, I think I think the uh, the house sort of the house will be excited for anything that debuted at the New York Film Festival. So, um, <laughs> so Tar, go Tar. Yeah. Um, although I don't think that didn't did that debut at the New York Film Festival? Or did that play? I guess it was Telluride was first, but it was, it, was yeah. it was at the New York Film Festival. It was at the New York Film Festival at least. So that and um, a couple other films were there as well that I think have been nominated. Um. One last thing before we do wrap things up here, just quickly on documentaries, just because it's a it's a personal interest of mine. The DG at the DGAs, I believe Navalny, no, other way around. Fire of Love received the award at the DGAs. So for Sarah Dosa and her documentary about the volcanologists who perished um, in a volcano eruption in the 2000s, I believe it was the 2000s. Um, one and it's sort of going head to head with. Um, with the other Sundance doc from last year. Uh, that is Navalny, which one of the PGAs for outstanding uh, documentary production. So I, I don't know what that's to say, Scott, but that is an exciting back and forth there. I thought both of those documentaries were great. I, I think Fire of Love just missed my top 20 this year, but Navalny was in my top 20. Um, two great documentaries. Would recommend them if you haven't, if you haven't seen them. Navalny is on HBO Max. I believe Fire of Love is on Hulu. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, now have... it might be on Disney Plus even. Um, oh, true. Yeah, yeah, Disney Plus. Yep. I haven't seen Fire of Love. I did really like Navalny, Scott. I guess I am just sad in general, though, that uh, it seems the momentum that was once there for all the beauty and the bloodshed is not really there anymore. Because to me, that is that's easily the best film in the category. Yeah, I, I don't even disagree with that. I think I think that it was probably highest on. I think it's a highest on my top twenty list as well. I'll be curious. I I, I don't know the history of. Uh, remind me of the film director's name. I'm forgetting off the top of my head right now. Laura Poitras. Laura Poitras. I was going to say Nan Golden, but that's the subject of the documentary. Um, 
I don't know Laura Poitras's history at the DGAs or the PGAs. I mean, but she's, she's obviously won, won an Academy before, Award. Yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say. But she's obviously won an Academy Award. So I would not count her out. Um, you know, I think that I, I didn't look at the at the history of of how PGA or DGA awards track to Oscars. But I think there there's totally a chance that all the beauty and the bloodshed still wins, um, mm-hmm. just based off the the sort of history of Laura Poitras with the Academy, and mm-hmm. also the the deep cultural significance for America of that film. It it would not totally surprise me. That said, um, you know, it's a it is a touchy subject. I think for maybe some of the people in Hollywood, one way or the other. So. Uh, you know, I, I guess we'll see how things play out. I wouldn't count it out yet, though. Yeah, well, I, I hope not. I mean, that would that would be a big thrill if if that ended up winning for me. All right, I think that should just about do it for episode two twenty five of Some Like a Scott. Where can people find you on social media? I am at Scarvy Dent on all platforms, and I'm at Shelton two zero one three on Twitter, Letterbox, Serialize, etc. Don't forget to also check out our podcast, Patreon. Scott mentioned at the top, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Please check that out if you can. Uh, if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We'll be back next week with a review of another third film in a sub-franchise of a broader film franchise as we discuss Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut, Creed Three. We hope you'll join us for that next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.